Well, it's great to see you guys this morning. My name is Brian, uh, and I am typically on stage for worship, but I also lead our college ministry in the last week. And this week, I'm going to be concluding our series, a mini-series, on the story of Naaman, uh, which we find in the book of 2 Kings. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon as it, it does set the stage for our text this morning. That said, if you're joining us for the first time, no worries, I'll bring you up to speed to make sure you can understand what's going on this morning. And as always, it's my prayer that the Lord would meet us this morning and that he would, by the power and work of his Holy Spirit, change us. So our text is 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 15 through 27. And as with last week, if you haven't spent much time in the book of 2 Kings, I'm going to encourage you to do so, and uh, you're in it for a real treat this morning. This story, the story of Naaman, is one of the brilliant stories of our Bible. And unlike last week, though, where it really focused on Naaman, this, this morning doesn't just center around the person and work of Naaman, at least not entirely. Now, you'd be forgiven if you thought our story centered around money. It certainly seems that way at first. But I don't think that interpretation quite gets to the heart of it either. See, I think our story this morning has far more to do with a concept known as shalom, or really the invitation of shalom, more than it has to do with anything else. Now, the word shalom is an old Hebrew word, which means peace. And this peace can be understood in roughly three distinct ways. First, shalom can signify personal peace. That's sometimes what we would call inner peace. And I don't have to tell you how important inner peace is in our culture today. Just look at the explosion of apps and programs, all dealing with mindfulness or meditation, with the desire, the stated desire, to promise to make you feel your best while minimizing personal distraction and discomfort. It's a big deal, and increasingly it's become big business, which makes sense. None of us want to remain in a state of conflict. In fact, some of the worst seasons of my life have come when I have inner confusion or turmoil, and it's important to know that the Bible speaks into this as well. In fact, our verse this morning, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, gets kind of at the heart of this, this idea of inner peace. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is aiming at that sense of inner peace. When I'm going through life, when anxiousness has gripped my heart, when Trials have overcome me. How do I have inner peace? So shalom, inner peace, that's one aspect, one piece of the pie this morning, but it's not the only one. There's also peace with others. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 speaks to this when it says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So we can have shalom within ourselves, what we call inner peace or personal peace. We can have shalom with others, peace with our neighbor, our brother, our family. Okay, but we can also have peace with God. And this is the primary way the Bible speaks of shalom, and it's the way it shows up most often. It's peace with God. And I think our text this morning is going to argue that both inner peace and peace with others are actually a byproduct of us first having peace with God. And I would say this is even beginning to catch within the broader society we live in. As our nation moves further and further towards a post-Christian reality, more and more people are seeing their need for a deep spiritual connection. And while this is leading many into meditation and other forms of mindfulness, I do hear rumblings, and I'm starting to see it with our college students, a deep hunger for religious convictions of old, a yearning for something that goes beyond the flippancy of our post-everything culture. 
a yearning that goes beyond just peace within their self or with others. And so our text this morning, and and as we're dealing with this tri-understanding of peace, I I believe like Naaman and those in our culture, we all come to a point where we struggle to have peace. And it may be within self, it may be with others. I'm going to make the argument today that it's primarily speaking with God. We struggle to have peace with God, and we see it in these other areas of our life. And to me, this is understandable. We struggle to know know that we're loved. We, We struggle even sometimes not to resist that love because we don't believe we're worthy of it or we don't believe we're worth it. We also struggle to just be the people we want to be. There's a person that we've identified, this is how I should live, and and we fail to meet it. And when we don't measure up to the standards that we've set, we often wonder, how could God possibly love me? How could he have peace with me? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to unpack this idea of how do we have peace with God? And we're going to examine it by three perspectives. First, we're going to look and see, can money provide us a sense of peace with God? Second, we're going to look to see if religious behavior can provide us a sense of peace with God. And third, we're going to look at faith. And all these come from our text. I didn't just pull them out, but money, religious behavior, and faith, these are all within the text. And we're just going to simply see, we're going to look and see, do these things give us peace with God? And we'll start by looking at money. Scene 1, verse 15 Then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him. This is Naaman, by the way. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, this is Elijah speaking, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now, in case you missed last week, let me just briefly bringing up to speed on what's going on here. Naaman is a commander of the Syrian army, and he was trying to be healed of his leprosy. And he was searching, and he was looking, and there was no one within Syria that could do the job. And so he searched out for a distant prophet that lived in a distant land who it was told of him could actually heal him. And when Naaman arrived at the prophet's house, and the prophet here, his name is Elisha, Elisha told him to clean himself in the river Jordan, to dip himself in there seven times. And this sent Naaman into a rage. Naaman was completely beyond himself. He felt that the prophet had misunderstood his request. I I don't want to just be clean. I want to be healed. And so he left. But at the urging of his servants, Naaman went down to the river and washed as he was instructed. And upon rising from the water, his skin was fully healed. His leprosy was gone. And this is where our passage picks up this morning. Naaman cleansed not only in flesh, but in heart as well, is heading back to the prophet Elisha, and he's got an offering in his hand. But notice that Elisha does not take the offering. He doesn't respond the way you and I might have thought he would respond. He doesn't respond with acceptance or praise. This is what he says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Now last week we also unpacked this important phrase, this idea of standing before the door or standing before the Lord or standing before someone. And it came up several times within our passage last week and it's going to continue to come up several times. It's it's somewhat of a, a theme and a thread that connects these two passages or these two parts of the same story. 
And in particular, we looked at how standing before the door is an exercise in humility, especially for a man of Naaman's status. Naaman was a, a commander. He didn't go to people. People came to him. And yet here he is standing before the prophet's door, waiting on rather than being waited upon, and how it required him to humble himself. And now here we see a spiritual component as well. See, when Naaman stood before Elisha, it was not because of Elisha's greatness. For we find in our text this morning that Elisha, too, is a man who stands. No, to stand before the door is to be laid bare before God and God alone. That's the spiritual significance of that phrase. See, if Elisha took the money from Naaman right there, he'd be guilty of enriching himself off the grace of God. He'd be guilty of commodifying God's healing power. In effect, he'd be no better than the pagan prophets that Naaman's hometown would have cultivated. So Elijah did the only thing he could do. He acknowledged Naaman's healing, salvation, and peace from God. All these things are a work of grace through faith. They're not a result of the prophet's work. So recently, I've gotten back into running. Many of you guys know Steve. He's training for a marathon, and he asked me to run it with him, to which I said no. Uh, and then I decided a half marathon wouldn't be so bad. So yesterday we did that. We did the half marathon, and Steve ran part of that with me, and then Allie and Luke ran all of it with me. Thank you, guys. Um, but as I was reflecting on my running experience, I, I remembered a, a moment, probably about 10 years ago, when I was running in the Montclair neighborhood, uh, just here near downtown, and I came upon a man walking his dog, pretty typical. Thought to myself, I'll just take the inside of the sidewalk, and they can have the outside, and, and we'll be just fine. Which is what I thought until about mid-stride when the dog apparently had a different idea and reached out and grabbed, tried to grab my thigh, effectively tried to bite my thigh, and ended up with about half of my shorts in his mouth, uh, which he promptly tore, and then it was just me, half of my shorts, and looking at a man holding a dog with half of my shorts in its mouth. Now, I'm sure you've never been in this position, but it's kind of an odd way to start a conversation. Hey, I'm Brian. Your dog just tried to eat me. Um, and this guy was really shook and understandable. His, his dog had just attacked me as he held the leash, right? He's still holding the leash of the dog, and the dog is going after me. So he starts to fumble over himself, and at this point begins kind of sweating a lot, and reaches into his pocket, and I'll never forget, uh, hands me, I think, $40, and asks, do you think this covers it? Do you think this covers it? Now, looking back, again, this was about 10, 12 years ago. I was uh, not altogether uh, the same person now as I was then. I used to wear shorts with holes in them, not as a fashion statement. I just was not a put-together person. And so you thought what I would have had a, a bit more common sense than I did, but in that moment, as he hands me the cash, I just said, yeah, I think so, and kept on running. And that was it. He handed me 40. I took it. I ran. No joke. That's what happened. Now, in hindsight, I look back at that, and I'm like, man, we, we handled that so poorly. Like, a report should have been filed. This dog needed to be, he clearly wanted my flesh. You know, I don't know if he had done this to somebody else. This man had no business owning this dog. I had no business accepting a cash bribe. Like, the whole thing was not actually the way it should have worked. And I sometimes think this is how we approach peace with God. We hand over 40 and think, does this cover it? In reality, we know it doesn't even come close. Pull back to Naaman. He's giving a present to Elijah. 
He's responding in a manner that makes sense to him. This would have been very typical for a noble of his status to give a lot of gifts in payment for his healing. But catch what Elisha does. Even though Naaman's wanting to express his gratitude and thankfulness, Elisha shows himself to be a messenger. That it was not his gift to receive. And in effect, what Elisha is saying to us is peace with God cannot be credited to another. It cannot be purchased or secured with our money. Money is not what gives us peace with God. It cannot be used as a means of earning or enriching our favor with God. And those who engage in this will ultimately enrich those who want nothing more than self-reliance and fame-seeking. So up here, if we approach peace with God through our money, it leads to self-reliance or fame-seeking. And the self-reliance can sometimes be we try to purchase the peace of God through the security we can find around us and ends up leading us apart from God. For Naaman, I think he genuinely just wanted to offer a gift. But Elijah had to teach him, it's the Lord who saved you, not me. Now, I know what you're thinking. Brian, I know money doesn't give me salvation and peace with God. I know putting money in the offering plate is not what gives me peace with God. To which you might say, you have to be a good person. You have to be a person who is in with the big man upstairs, somebody who is doing the right things, living their life according to the right rules. You, you make sure that you're doing things right for him, and then you'll, be, then you'll have peace with God. And many of us have heard that. I think we should dig into it. Let's dig in and see, does our religious behavior give us peace with God? We're going to go ahead and flip down to verse 19. Don't worry, we will come back and finish the middle of the text, but we got to look at Gehazi here. Verse 20, Gehazi, when the, uh, just before verse 20, 19b. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. And as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So this section of the narrative is actually fairly straightforward. Gehazi is a servant of Elisha. And he would have been privy, he would have had knowledge that Naaman's offer of of peace was rejected. In fact, Gehazi may have even been the one instructed to tell Naaman to go bathe in the River Jordan. We we don't know. The the text isn't clear there. But if so, Gehazi would have had a front row seat to the healing of Naaman. And if that's true, that would make the story all the more tragic. Anyways, as he makes his way to Naaman, note the similarity and phrasing between Elisha and Gehazi. In particular, this phrase, as the Lord lives. Do you remember that? That's what Elisha said to Naaman when he wouldn't receive. And yet, it's the very statement now being used by Gehazi to strive after this money. Continuing on in verse 21. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come from me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men, the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags. 
with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. If we could go back to verse 21, I want to point out something. Is all well? What an absolutely brilliant question. Another way you could translate that is, is all shalom? Is all peace with you? Here's the question the text is asking us. We, the reader, know the answer to this question. We know which of these men, Elijah or the servant and commander of the Syrian army, we know which one has shalom. We know which one has inner peace. We know which one has peace with God. See, the servant of Elijah, Gehazi, was a man who'd seen untold healings from the hand of Yahweh. Might have even witnessed the healing of Naaman. And now he's lying to that man for profit. And notice Naaman, a man who had grown up under the pagan worship of Rimen, a man who had likely killed prophets like Elijah, now offering double of what was asked from him. This text is meant to be jarring. This text is meant to put us on our toes so that we ask the question of ourselves. Do I have shalom? Do I have peace with God? Because it's the unexpected person in this couplet that has it. You would expect a servant of Elisha to be at peace with God, yet it is not him. And we know that. The author is giving us that information so that we might ask the question. Continue with me in verse 24. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand, this is Gehazi, and put them in his house. And he sent the men away. And they departed. And he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. And he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyard, sheep and oxen, male servants, and female servants. Did you catch it? Did you catch the phrase in there? The one that's been weaving its way throughout our narrative from start to finish? He stood before him. To stand before is to be laid bare before God. It is to be seen as you truly are. And Gehazi is about to realize what we, the reader, have known for some time. That he does not have peace with God. And here we see Elijah doing the only thing he could do in that moment. Which is to show Gehazi for who he truly is. Read with me. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. And so he went out from his presence, a leper, like snow. Gehazi served at the behest of Elijah for years. In fact, Gehazi is mentioned several times throughout the book of 2 Kings and can often be seeing the work on Elisha's behalf. And this, this highlights a fact that should never be overlooked. It is fully possible, and indeed happens often, that we hide behind our service to God 
having never trusted in the God whom we say we serve. To make a forgery of peace with God through our religious practice or proximity to religious people, yet never love him from the heart. Gehazi represents an all-too-common person, one who spends their life in the halls of the church only to see at the end of their life that they never knew the God of that church. Now let's turn this on its head just a bit. Do you see the greatest gift God could give Naaman was to show him on the outside who he truly was on the inside? Yes, that he was leprous of skin, but that it was the leprosy of his heart that would have condemned him to an eternity apart from God. That was the greatest gift. It showed him his need. Likewise, the greatest gift given to Gehazi was to show him on the outside what had been true of him on the inside for far longer than he knew. That he did not have peace with God, that he did not have shalom with God. That he was leprous of heart and now leprous of skin as well. But unlike Naaman, who departed only to humble himself and come back. Gehazi runs from the only source. We're told at the end of that scripture, he, he goes. And he doesn't come back. He runs from the only source that could actually save him. I believe our text this morning shows us peace with God is not centered or earned by our religious behavior. Gehazi did many good deeds. He served in Elisha's steed for a long time. But he did not have peace with God. And when he was exposed for who he truly was, he despaired. And he ran from the only source that could truly clean. And so we see, do we have peace with God through religious behavior? I would say no. It leads to a false sense of peace or despair when you're shown. And we also know that we don't have peace through our money. It can really to self-reliance or fame or glory in the self. So the question remains then, how do we have peace with God? How do we have peace with God? And I'm going to argue it's through faith. And I believe our text shows us that. Look with me in verse 17. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god, but the Lord. See, Naaman is still reeling from this newfound faith he has in God. And he turns to Elijah with a request. He wants dirt. And we're told why. He, he wants to make continual offering to the God of Israel, the God he now serves. And, and I know this sounds odd to us, but to Naaman it would have been immensely practical. See, you have to understand the importance land played in Eastern, near Eastern ancient worship. When someone wanted to offer a sacrifice, they would have to travel a great distance to a specific location where a sacrifice could be performed. And in effect, these locations were typically designated as holy places, not unlike the holy cities we still see today littered throughout the Middle East. So when he makes this request, what he's wanting is he's wanting to make sure that he would be able to worship Yahweh where he lives, that he would be able to sacrifice to Yahweh even though he lives in Syria. And I know this sounds strange, 
growing up in a strict materialist world which values the physical over and against the spiritual, but it would have made complete sense to Naaman. Having said that, it's the next section of this text that really gets to the heart of this idea of how do we have peace with God. Verse 18, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. This is Naaman speaking. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. Now pause with me. He's been cleansed of his leprosy and sin, and now he's telling Elisha, I desire to worship the God of Israel alone, no other. But there's a bit of a problem. See, upon returning home, Naaman knows, knows the duties he's going to face as a commander of the Syrian army. He's going to have to bow himself. That is, he's going to be expected to worship within the house of Rimen, the pagan deity of the Syrian god. And catch his request. This is super important. He's not asking if he should go. For that question is answered implicitly by the text. No, he shouldn't. For why else would he be asking for pardon? Unless he knew it was wrong. No, the question he's asking is, is actually about the veracity of his faith. Having been made clean by God through faith, will that faith keep me? To illustrate this, I'm actually going to pull another verse from the Bible that I think is going to help us show how to best interpret this. And we're going to find that situation in Second Chronicles. And again, I think it's going to help illustrate the heart not only of God, but also of Elijah's response. Look with me. Verse 13, and many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very great assembly. This is during the rule of Hezekiah. Israel's been effectively worshiping the pagan deities of the nations around them, and the temple has has itself fallen into ruins, and so as Hezekiah is trying to lift the people back, he's trying to get them back to what a proper worship of Yahweh would look like. You're going to see what happens when that Passover festival starts up. It, it, it doesn't go according to plan. Verse 17, for there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves, that has not dedicated themselves fully unto the Lord. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. These are the part of the 12 tribes of Israel that that would have made up all of Israel. And yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed to them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Okay, let me just fill in some gaps that you may have. Hezekiah recently cleansed the the temple because his father was a debaucherous fool and had brought idols from pagans all in and littered them within the temple of God. And so as Hezekiah is seeking to reestablish the worship, the proper worship, by instituting this Passover feast, one of the major holidays of the Jewish calendar, 
it became clear to everyone that as all of Israel was gathering, due to their negligence over the years, most of the people were unclean. They were ceremonially unclean. And you and I, we don't understand the importance of cleanliness in our culture today as they would have in Israel. But just make a note, this was a big deal. A big deal. And Hezekiah found himself in the uncanny position of needing to sacrifice on behalf of the very people offering a sacrifice. Asking for mercy on behalf of the very people searching out Yahweh for mercy. But here's what I want you to focus on. Notice the use of the word pardon. It's the very same word used by Naaman. And in effect, both are using it in the same way. Both Hezekiah and Naaman are asking God to pardon the actions of those who are seeking God in faith, yet sinning against him in action. And this question deals with both the heart and the action. You see how the Lord responds in verse 20. And the Lord heard, and he healed And thankfully, our text is helpful in that we're given the reason for God's response through the prayer of Hezekiah himself. Verse 19, he who sets his heart to seek God the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. May the good Lord pardon. The one who sets his heart to seek God is the one who is healed. The one who sets his heart to seek God is the one met with grace. The one who has faith is the one who walks away with peace before God. We serve a gracious and holy God, both merciful and just. And as we get to the final words of Elisha to Naaman in our text, notice the implicit question at hand. Does faith alone give me peace with God? To which Elisha responds in verse 19. And he said to him, go in peace. So as we look to apply this text to our lives this morning, some of you might be thinking, Brian, I'm with you, but but does this mean we get to love God and as long as we love God, we can worship him any way we want? Does this type of thinking not lead to a syncretism, this combining of multiple religions and religious practices? I think our, the theologian Franz Dielich will prove helpful here. And when I was in seminary, this is a man I had to read many of his commentaries. He was beloved by Jack Collins, and I've learned to love him as well. Elijah answered, Go in peace, wishing the departing Syrian the peace of God upon the road, without hereby, thereby either approving or disapproving the religious convictions which he had expressed. For as Naaman had not asked permission to go with his king into the temple of Rimmon, but had simply said, might Jehovah, that is Yahweh, forgive him or be indulgent with him in this manner, Elisha could do nothing more without a special command from God than command the heathen who had been brought to belief in God of Israel as the true God by the miraculous cure of his leprosy to commend him to the further guidance of the Lord and his grace. Texts can be descriptive, that is, they tell us what happened, or they can be prescriptive, that is, they tell us what to do. And I believe our text is primarily descriptive. It speaks to a unique situation of Naaman alone. But don't take the wrong lesson from this passage. This passage is focused on the grace of God. 
and the saving work of that grace through faith. It is not focused on what I can or cannot get by with. Hear me out. We looked at two men today. One walked away justified and one walked away a leper and the difference was faith. Two men both needing shalom and one walked away with that peace and the other did not and the difference was faith. God's grace through faith is the only way we ever have true shalom with him. So I believe this highlights the importance of being genuine before the Lord. And if you've been here the past few weeks, you've likely heard this phrase over and over and over again. And that is to stand before our God. Naaman's doing it. Gehazi's doing it. Elisha's doing it. We're all doing it. We're all standing before our God. And I believe it has implications for us that go far beyond the story. Both Naaman and Gehazi, the inciting action in their lives happened when they stood before the door. For Naaman, it was the first time he saw himself as he was, and he went away in a rage. Yet in faith, he moved towards God and came away not just with personal peace, but peace with God, true shalom. And for Gehazi, it was the first time he saw himself as he was, yet he did not move in faith towards God and rather ran in fear and despair as his skin became the embodiment of what his heart had always been. So as we apply this, I believe what we have to come away with is that as we stand before God, we stand before him in faith. In faith. That we do not come to God with our strength, we come to him with our need. We come to him with our brokenness, our shame, and our guilt. Guys, look at, look at the two men. Naaman came as a leper, yet he left fully restored as a son of God. He, he came as a sovereign commander who could rule the corners of the earth, yet that could not save him, and left devoted to worshiping the God of his enemies, the God of Israel. And as we hold that in our mind, consider then the life of Gehazi. A man who spent his life serving in the house of God. A man who gave his time helping a prophet minister to the broken and downtrodden, yet did not have peace with God. Brothers and sisters, let us not presume upon our work for God. For the time we spend in this church, for the time we give to his ministry, or the amount we give. God's grace cannot be purchased. Salvation in him must be received by faith. And therefore, I would encourage you to cry out, to humble yourself before God, to know that he is good, to trust that he is near, to believe that he will use all things for good for those who love him. And we can do this because of Jesus, because we have confidence in the work of Christ. Jesus, who came and dwelt with us so that we might have freedom in him, Jesus, the one who gave up his rights so that by his blood we could be purchased and redeemed Jesus, the one who worshiped God in perfect obedience so that we might be free from the sin that so easily ensnares us. And it is by grace through faith in Christ alone that we're saved. He is the only means of our peace. And for those of you who don't know Jesus this morning, I implore you to see that you have one option. Naaman and Gehazi 
were men with similar needs, both standing before the Lord, but only one did so in faith. And he was cleansed from head to toe that very moment. Come to Jesus. You don't have to get yourself ready for him. You don't need to make everything set. Come to him in your need, believing that his death and resurrection covers you. Receive him by faith, for it is by grace that he's been giving it to you. Now, for those who believe this morning, I invite you, as you bear yourself before the Lord, to rest in him, knowing that he calls you a son and daughter, knowing that he has already lavished his good mercy over you, and that the trials you are facing right now, he will use for your good, because he walks with you. He walks with you. Some of the hardest seasons of my life have been the seasons where the inner turmoil the personal peace I've had with people has fallen apart. I could talk for hours about how I've walked through seasons where my inner peace was just gone. Fall of 19 was one of those years for me. And even peace with people, even peace with people in this church. And yet it was peace with the Lord that sustained me. It was the only hope I had. It was the only way I got through. And that's not a joke. And that's not a platitude. It's true. So believer in Christ, I encourage you, run to him. Run to him in your need. To all I invite you, to walk not in reliance on money or possession, not in reliance on religious behavior, but on reliance on Christ alone through faith. I invite you today to call upon Jesus in prayer, to ask him to come, to ask him to relieve, to ask him to restore. For he is faithful indeed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the story of Naaman and the story of Gehazi. We see your mighty hand at work showing Naaman on the outside what was true of him on the inside, bringing him to a spot of humility where he could no longer rely on himself to fix it, and thoroughly cleansing him from the very moment he believed. Father, I pray that we would have a heart like that this morning. I pray that we would have a heart that responds to your invitation, that moves towards you rather than running away from the only source that can save us. Pray for those who don't know you this morning that they would run towards you. And not come up with the thousand of excuses for why this makes no sense. Of course it makes no sense to dip yourself in a river seven times to be healed. Because that's not how people are healed. And yet you heal however you choose. And you do it through faith. And you do it by your grace. Father, I thank you for your love. Thank you for the way that you relentlessly pursue us. For those who know you this morning, I pray that you would encourage them deep within their bones. For those who are struggling and wrestling with seasons of life that seem all too much to bear, that you would meet them, Father. That they would cling to your word, that they would not run away. For you are great in mercy, Father. And we love you. 
Amen.